Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Diversity and inclusion at the board level is critical to bringing new perspectives and experiences to ultimately better serve the community. Achieving diversity can be challenging, but many not-for-profit organizations realize that inclusiveness is essential to achieving goals. Hosted by Weaver's Elisa Martin, this edition of Weaver's Beyond the Numbers brings together a panel of not-for-profit diversity experts to discuss the challenges of creating a diverse board and what not-for-profit leaders can do to encourage board participation from all backgrounds. It is a privilege to have everyone today to listen to this topic, specifically building an inclusive and diverse board. This is an important topic, and we are privileged to have two very experienced panelists. Our first is Ronnie Haggerty, and as the Vice President of Community Relations for the United Way of Greater Houston, Ronnie is responsible for leadership development initiatives and engaging leader programs. Ronnie's recognized throughout her career for all of her contributions to the thriving Houston not-for-profit landscape. And we really are appreciative of her contributions today. And she currently is an advisor with Rice University's Best Boards Conference, also the Not-for-Profit Leadership Collaborative and Conference of Southwest Foundations Grantor and Grantee Dialogue, and serves with local organizations such as Women's in Philanthropy and the Junior League of Houston. Mrs. Haggerty serves as the board member for The Rose and is an advisory committee member for Houston Arts Alliance, Not-for-Profit Leadership Alliance, and Career Gear. Thank you very much, Ronnie, for being here. We also have our second panelist, Dr. Francois Booker-Drew. Francois has an extensive background in not-for-profit management, partnership development, training, and education. She is currently the Vice President of Community Affairs and Strategic Alliances for the State Fair of Texas. She was formerly the National Community Engagement Director for World Vision, where she served as a catalyst partnership broker and capacity builder with local partners. She is a recipient of several honors, including the semifinalist for SMU TED Talks in 2012, the 2012 Outstanding African American Alumni Award from the University of Texas at Arlington, the 2009 Woman of the Year Award by Zeta Phi Beta Sorority, and was awarded the Diversity Ambassador from the American Red Cross. So thank you for giving of your time, Francois, as well. Thank you. I want to start the conversation about just the common challenges and obstacles in achieving board diversity. And so, Ronnie, I'd love to hear from your perspective, how do you define board diversity? You know, what's important for a not-for-profit entity to recognize in this initiative? The best way to define board diversity is to think about the community that is served by that organization. And it is really essential that boards reflect um, the community in which they operate, in which they deliver their mission. And the reality is, in, in today's world, boards simply are not diverse that according to a board source study, Leading with Intent, which is soon to be released, almost 80% of board members are white. Only 10% are black. I will add to that that a, more than 50% are over 50. So we have uh, an aging white board representation in communities like Houston, which is one of the most diverse cities in the United States. Um, only 35% of board members report that their board composition represents the demographics of the population they serve. Um, and only a quarter of those boards really place a high priority on diversifying those organizations. Um, so we have a long way to go. And the, the work is really critical if our organizations are going to be relevant to uh, the, the days ahead. Francois, from your perspective, 
how would you further define the difference in the boundaries of race, gender, age, and so forth? You know, I think it's important for us to note, to, to Ronnie's point, that diversity is really lacking. When you look at diversity, not only from a board perspective, but senior leadership and sometimes even in staffing in our nonprofit organizations, there is um, a problem. And for many of our nonprofits, particularly those that are led by people of color, diversity is important in those organizations because they're networks that they typically don't have access to. And so being able to have diversity, not only in predominantly white organizations is important, but also organizations led by people of color need that diversity as well so that they are able to have access to resources and information that they may not typically have access to because of those um, networks. It's also important to pay attention to the role of age and even ideology. I think sometimes we tend to get people who think just like we do and there, and, and that feels good and it, it's comfortable. But the challenge in that is we have blind spots. And so to be able to make sure that we are bringing in people who have different viewpoints, different geographies, I think all of those representations have to be taken into account when we're looking at our board diversity and makeup. Well, and as Francois said, the reality is we recruit people we know. And so those networks uh, tend to be limited and we are just in an environment where our board recruitment has to be intentional. We can't simply say uh, a month before it's time to activate the nominating committee, does anybody know anybody? Because the odds are good, we're going to identify somebody who we go to church with or work with or uh, walk with every morning. And that's going to continue the cycle of um, this sort of closed circle of individuals. And, and as Francois said, also, um, you know, what I might think at this age and stage of life is vastly different from what my daughter and her friends are likely to be thinking. And, you know, that is our future. The, the generations that come after us are where we will look for our sustainability or our failure to serve going forward. And so it, we, one size doesn't fit all. And we need to look at our particular mission and say, what are we missing? And, and that goes along with your emerging leaders in the, leader initiatives that you are so passionate about. There definitely are challenges in implementing a, a board that is diverse and that is, is inclusive. What, what kind of challenges have you faced and, and, and how have you overcome them? I'd love to hear some of how you've overcome the challenges yourself, Francois. You know, I'm, I'm really big on, as you can tell, talking about networks and social capital. And I think it's really important for us to think about assets that exist in our community and seeing people as assets. I typically like using um, the work of Jody McKnight and um, John Kretzman that looks at what's called asset-based community development. I won't go through all the categories, but what they help you to think about are associations and institutions and thinking about the local economy. So how do we tap into those ethnic chambers of commerce? Um, where I get so frustrated is when people say, I can't find people. And I'm always going, no, it, they exist. You're not looking. And it's using that asset map to really help you or board matrix that can really help you think strategically. And so for me, I'm always trying to think about who are the people that are missing? And when I look around the room and if there are people or voices that are not represented, for me, it's very important. Um, and I'm serving on several boards now and doing that and being able to identify folks and bring them to the table. And so it's, you know, one, I think as leaders, we have to think about how are we mentoring and does mentoring and sponsorship play a role not only in our work internally in our organizations, but what does that look like externally so that we can bring people to the table that don't look like us, but we're giving them a door and access to then moving into some of these positions like board leadership. Well, and as you said, I think that board grid is a, is a great, totally objective way to start that you um, look at who do you have? I mean, it can be an Excel spreadsheet. It doesn't need to be anything fancy. Who's on your board right now? Um, how old are they? What is their ethnicity? Um, do they, where did they go to school? Do they have college degrees? What professions are they in? What industries do they work in? Do they have children? Uh, what age and stage of life are they? 
and and really just lay it out so that everyone can see it. And then it's not a matter of opinion. It's this is what our board looks like. And here are the, the gaps. Here's what we're missing. Let's look at our cities. Let's look at our communities and, and say, um, how does this align with the individuals that are making our community strong? And um, it again, as I said, it has to be deliberate. You, you can't just accidentally hope that you're going to put together a diverse board. And Francois, I, your point about the, the associations, the, all of the professional groups and um, the chambers and the sororities and the fraternities and um, the, the small businesses, we tend to forget that there are all these different pieces that make up the fabric of our community. And if we're only looking at one corner of it, um, it it's going to take us an awful long time to get where we need to go. And it requires us to have a different lens because it forces us to stop looking at our communities from a deficit standpoint and beginning to look at the assets that exist, not only in you know, our institutions and those associations, but in individuals. So how are we really being, to your point, deliberate about reaching out? And when we don't know, asking questions instead of saying, well, it doesn't exist. And I think that in cities like Dallas and Houston and other areas, it's not difficult to be able to tap into those networks. And how do you even use things like a LinkedIn to begin to start finding individuals? There's another app that's amazing called Shaper, that's S-H-A-P-H-R. That is another wonderful resource where you can identify very talented individuals that can become a pipeline to your board leadership. You know, Francois, you bring up a good point. And, um, you know, that pipeline and recruiting is, is very, very important. But you also have to look within. And Ronnie, you brought up the just the matrix of you know, who's on your current board and what is that composition and what might we need to add to bring diversity of thought and uh, representation to our board. Have either of you experienced any resistance or what would you tell someone that experiences resistance to trying to bring that diversity to their board? Well, I remember, and this goes back a few years, having a conversation with a, a board and really, to my surprise, getting some pretty serious pushback and trying to figure out what was at the heart of it. And, and the answer I got was, well, they don't have any money. And I thought, okay, wait a minute. Um, my background is advertising and marketing. And you know, our ethnic communities, our multicultural communities are the fastest growing income groups in the country right now. And so while I am not going likely to say back to an individual, you're ignorant, but <laughs> that happens to be the reality that you, you can't operate in a silo. And it, it's back to, you know, who we know and who we're comfortable with, that you have to really be prepared to look at the big picture. And, and it's not all about money. Uh, someone said recently, you know, we're looking for doers, donors, and door openers. And we would like everyone to be sufficiently of means so that they could support us financially. But again, let's just take those younger folks that we're trying to recruit. They recently out of college have large college debts. They're early in their career. They're not at a place where they're going to be writing big checks. But if we ignore them now, where will we be 10, 15, 20 years from now? And they could be a doer or a do and not a donor. You definitely need contribution from all to be effective. But resistance is real. It is that you mentioned, you know, we have people that are on the boards that look like us because they're the people that we mostly interact with. So, Francois, any, any feedback from you that oh, is a I, I've dealt with that recently with being on, on a board and being one of the only um Black folks on the board and helping them to understand the return on investment, so to speak, and, and trying to get it in people's language that you are missing out, to Ronnie's point, on really high donor networks and communities of color. And so helping them to understand that it's not just the financial piece. You know, we do talk about the the uh, talent and treasure, but it's a testimony piece that we also need people there to be a part of our board. So how do we get people that can advocate for us? And when you're thinking about young people and the power that they have in developing networks using social media, 
I mean, that testimony is the thing that opens up the doors to more relationships, to, to more visibility. And so we have to look at board membership in a greater way and beginning to see that return on investment beyond just the dollar amount that people bring, but the viewpoint that they have can be so enriching to give you a different perspective on areas that you may not have even considered because you're unaware of. And so for me, it's been helping that board understand, and they're getting it, understanding the value of bringing other perspectives and people of different backgrounds to the table, because how do we adequately serve the communities that we're working in when we don't have people there that represent them and can speak into their experience? And so often we'll create programs and wonder why they don't work because the very people we're creating them for aren't even involved in the process. And so helping boards to understand that can really make a difference in the way they do business. Great insight. Um, so let's move to the next topic and let's talk about recruiting. Recruiting is, is something that we have to do no matter whether we're recruiting diverse for diversity or not. Um, but it is a lot easier when you're tapping into your own personal network, as you mentioned, Ronnie. Um, so what best practices would you suggest um, to ensuring that you're recruiting for diverse and varied backgrounds? And Francois, I'd love to start with you. Um, and we could even take tag off of, of some of that response from the audience for the polling question. The, the way that you look for people is one, it's building trust and Quite often, what happens is we tend to go grab people when we need them without having this process of building relationship and community. So what does it look like for you prior to the nomination process to really begin to do these lunch and learns where people can learn more about your organization? It can even begin at the committee level where you're bringing people on to be a part of committees and you're recruiting from sororities, fraternities, those ethnic chambers, and you're beginning to pull people to be on committees. So then you get an opportunity to see how they work and they get a chance to learn you and build trust. And then when the nomination process comes on, you then can begin to pull from those folks who served on committees to now become members of your board. And so I think what we have to begin to examine is it's not just starting when it's nominating time. The relationship has to begin prior to that and looking at ways where you can engage in your community, even thinking about past participants in your programs. How does it look to be able to have someone who has experienced what you've provided to them and they're now able to talk about how that has impacted them and they're speaking into the process? So board um, positions can't just be about folks who have resource. It really is about how do you make sure you have community representation and bringing different voices from your stakeholders, looking at your partners and your sponsors. There are so many networks that we already work in that I don't think we tap into our vendors and people that we're getting goods from. How do we begin to tap into those relationships to then use that as a pool for board recruitment? You know, board members always say, I don't know anybody. That, that's usually where the conversation starts. And, you know, if you can help them really think it through, I like to think about board recruitment the way I would think about if I were an entrepreneur and cost were no object, how would I build my business? What are the skills and talents that I would be looking for? And, you know, you you have your lawyer and your CPA and your IT person and your social media person. And, uh, you know, if you can think of it in terms of functions and then think, oh, yeah, there is a guy in our company who's really good at social media. I never thought about him. Um, you know, I think an interesting exercise for board members is to paper the walls in the old days. I guess we can't do that right this minute, but to really come up with um, a list of who they know. And so it's your doctor, it's your dentist, it's the um, the guy that you play tennis with, or it's the woman next door that you walk with every morning. Um, it's where, where your kids go to school. Who's their basketball coach? Who, who's their baseball coach? Um, who's the executive coach that you're working with? As Francois said, it's vendors are a wonderful resource. You know, we're customers. We tend to think of ourselves in the nonprofit sector and there's very much of a, please, please help us. We're, we're always asking. Well, no, I mean, we have cloud and we really need to remember that that we are peers and we are equals with these other kinds of organizations. And another suggestion, I, I wish it had been my own, but to create a blue ribbon panel for board recruitment where you ask a group, a small group of people, 
who will not serve on your board. They are already otherwise engaged or they're very prominent individuals who probably are too busy to serve on yet another board. But ask if they would be willing to serve on a committee that meets once for an hour and make suggestions to you of potential candidates within their organization or within their relationships and um, that, that we might consider for board members. And I have to believe if David Weekly in Houston, who is a very prominent philanthropist, uh, were to give me a name and I were to follow up with um, George Smith and say, Mr. Weekly suggested that I give you a call. He thought you might like to serve on my board. I'll bet they'd listen to me. So it's really approaching board recruitment very differently that we have to, instead of being in the supplicant mode where we're begging, uh, we are in the um, we are considering expanding our board and we are reviewing potential candidates. Would you like to be reviewed as a candidate? That's a very different message than we're desperate for board members. Would you please help us? Well, and it would also help you with the um, extent and, and the the, um, the level at which you are able to recruit board members so that the quality of your board and the contribution of each member is, is achieved. You know, it, I, I certainly think that... Um, that the achievement is helpful, but you mentioned that uh, a matrix of what diversity you're, you're trying to, to achieve, um, we don't want it to be a check the box exercise. You really want the quality of the diversity of thought and the contribution to the purpose of whatever that purpose of that board is. Um, and so how do you how do you make sure that, that it's not a check the box exercise in going through these efforts for recruitment? To me, it's the relationship piece though. Oh, I love that. It goes back to building relationships early. You know, nominating committees and boards tend to have a problem with this is where they start the nominating committee time when, you know, someone is about to roll off and then it's, uh oh, we've got to do this. When nominating committees should be year round and really should be thinking about, you know, both governance of the organization, but also thinking about who are potential candidates And so that, you know, when it's time to recruit, you already have a list of resumes and names of people that you've been in relationship with. And so boards have to be intentional just as they are about fundraising. This same approach has to occur when they're thinking about bringing people onto um, their boards is really building the relationships early so that they're in a position to then extend that that offer. And so, you know, the work groups are a wonderful idea. As Ronnie mentioned, I'm a part of one now where we're not actually on this board, but it's a group of us who are making recommendations because we're too busy, but we're making recommendations to do that and helping them think about who are some of the people and they brought diverse voices onto this work group to make sure that diverse individuals get to be a part of it. So that's one way that you can actually do that is having those kinds of work groups support you. And then thinking about the committee structure, you can have committees with people that aren't necessarily board members that are folks that are in the community and they can then begin to build relationship with you so that when it is time for nominating, you already have a pool to pull from. You know, Francis, one of the things that that you said in passing is you use the word governance. And in my world, I I encourage organizations to kind of ramp up from the basic nominating committee to really look at a governance committee or call it board development. And and that is, in my mind, that's probably second only to the finance committee in importance. That is the group that is responsible on a year-round basis, just as you said that we are always looking at candidates. I'm standing in line at the grocery store. I'm having a conversation at a PTO meeting and thinking, hmm, I wonder if this person might be a good candidate for our board. So that the the governance committee is responsible for board recruitment, board retention, uh, board engagement. Uh, They do an annual board assessment to see if this is an experience that's working for everyone. They plan the annual board retreat. That is a committee that has a lot of responsibility. And I'm really always surprised at how few different organizations have created that function as as a critical piece of their board work. Agreed. Agreed. I'd love to take this into today's climate and talk about board diversity and the political charge of diversity in today's climate and whether or not that should change your approach if, if you have a thought on, on that. I think it should inspire your approach. 
There you go. I love that word. To be really honest, it should inspire you to think about who's been marginalized and and how do we make sure that our organization is committed? My frustration right now is everybody is coming out with a statement and we're all committed to to something. And yet the action behind those statements don't exist. And so how are we making sure that we're not just talking about this, that we are inspired by those statements to actually do something? And it starts with our senior leadership. It can't be this approach where we're doing it in community and we think it's great to be out there in community and taking pictures with babies and kissing them. It has to move (laughs) up to our senior leadership. It has to be at the board level. We have to even think about the way in which we're bringing in vendors. It has to be a part of the entire organization. And it can't just be something that you're committed to just here. It has to be embedded in everything that we do. So I hope it inspires people in our current environment. Yeah, I, I really worry about, is this just a sort of tokenism where, okay, here is my pet smart statement about diversity. And then, wait a minute, you know, I'm not hearing anything else. Um, what What is different? What has changed? And uh, I, I spoke to someone this afternoon who was telling me about um, boards, his board service. And they had, I wish I could remember the name. I won't be able to, but I'll make it available. That his board read a book about um, racism. And that was something that they used as a discussion item at their next board meeting. And I thought, what a brilliant way to start a conversation in kind of an objective approach where we've all read the same book and, and you know, have a facilitated conversation. And what, what did we learn from it? What did, what did we what does it cause us to think about doing differently? So I think there are some tools we could use with our boards that we perhaps haven't thought about as a way of really fostering what may be uncomfortable conversations at right now. But we want to have those conversations. And, you know, I would be the last person to position myself as someone who would know the right way to do it. But I think you just have to get past that and say, let's talk. And, and to use something like a book or a blog or an article as a starting point, really seemed like such a good idea to me. I would love to get a little bit more insight on how you take the idea of the composition of your board and the goals of diversity and and then recruit diverse members and then really make the congruence happen to really to get the value of that diversity into the board and into the culture of the of the not-for-profit, the effort to recruit can only be the starting point. And um, and I know I love the, the opportunity to inspire the movement, but you also want to get some quality out there. So, Francois, how would you how would you look at the effort and recruitment, and then the integration into board service and truly action that follows? that goal. I've been pushing groups to really look at doing a racial equity audit. I think it's really important for organizations to not look at this in isolation because typically this is a symptom of something greater in an organization. And so how do you do a racial equity audit where you are looking at it from a lens of not only your board recruitment piece and you know what's the process for doing that, but even your marketing you know, who, who's on the cover of your marketing tools, thinking about your vendors, how are you doing procurement? So I think, you know, looking at it from an organizational level um, is going to help you get more done um, because you'll begin to see it from a system wide perspective. And I think, again, board governance is something that is just a component of an organization. And it's important, granted, because those are the folks who set the policy for the organization and and what the area of focus may look like for an organization. But in addition to that, if that's the only piece that's being cared for and it doesn't move into other areas of the organization, you're missing out on an amazing opportunity to really transform the way your organization does work, but also partner with your community in doing that. So who are some of the groups and organizations that are doing some of this work in community? What does it look like to partner with them to help them speak into the process about your audit, that they can help you with the recruitment piece and thinking strategically about that? So how do you start pulling in groups like the, the NAACP 
or, you know, we have the Hispanic Hispanic Women's Network. How do you begin to start bringing in groups like that who can then inform your process and speak to that and maybe even help you think strategically about moving forward and, and the results of that audit? You know, I, I think the other thing is we have to be okay with not always having the answers. And sometimes we're afraid to publish, oh my God, we don't have the diversity. We're afraid of it own it, be honest about it and say, now we've got to do something different. And we invite you to partner with us to make the changes that we need to do to be better. That's really, really helpful, Francois. And Ronnie, you made a great point earlier about um, really making those statements real and, and having true change. Do you have any example of an organization that's made true change or an example of action that has really made it real? Well, you know, I think it's um, our consciousness. It's early days. You know, I think that we've been through a year that has really um, enhanced our awareness and really caused us to step back and take a close look at what we're doing. I mean, I can say what we're doing at United Way of Greater Houston. Um, You know, our CEO, who's really quite new, who comes, uh, Amanda McMillan, who comes from corporate, you know, has said, we've got a ways to go. We've got some work to do, but but she is very um, committed to moving in that direction. Um, we have added to our website a page on DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and have tried to list and update as many resources as we could think about so that organizations in the community, if they're looking for a speaker or a blog or a book, there's information there. We are encouraging others to pass along great speakers that they've heard or a book that they've read that and I jotted down the one you mentioned, Francois. So, you know, how how do we share information broadly? And certainly our website is is one way to do it. And United Way of Greater Houston has had a program called Project Blueprint since the late 1980s. And as I think back to our board leadership who really initiated this effort, they were really quite visionary at a time when there wasn't a lot of talk about diversity in the 1980s. And Project Blueprint is a program that is designed to prepare members of our ethnic communities for board service. And we have an application annually and invite members of the community to apply. You can self-nominate or be nominated by one of our alums, and we have over a 1,000 now. And they go through a very intensive uh, training curriculum to prepare them for board service. And part of that is being the only one in a crowd. We all have uh, filters that we use to assess our experiences. Um, And when we think about recruiting, we're thinking about it from our point of view, but think about that new person who comes to the board who is the only one or one of two or three individuals who are representing communities that perhaps have not participated in our board, that's not easy work. Um, How are we prepared to welcome, to um, be really genuine and authentic about um, inviting them and creating an avenue for them to participate fully? You know, that's some real training, not just for those folks who are, they're incredible board members. I mean, they are very much in demand because they are so well-trained and so well-prepared to step up and really know what the role of a board member is. But at the same time, you know, we have to do the training for the the old timers, the long timers, the seasoned veterans who's, who, you know, might be saying, hmm, this doesn't look like what I'm accustomed to. Uh, are we welcoming? Are we open? You, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. We've got a lot of work to do. And, and you hit the, the, the point of integration that I, I was so hoping you would hit. Uh, Project Blueprint has been a great program. Certainly train, training is um, important, but being invited and integrating the new diverse member into the board is also the responsibility of the not-for-profit leadership as well as the board government. So let's move to this third section of our topics today. And that really has to do with building a diverse culture inside the not-for-profit. Certainly the board is a starting point, but in order for it to be effective, it really has to integrate in with that board culture that exists. 
And so, Robbie, I'd love to hear from you and to understand a little bit more about some of the programs that your organization offers. I know we heard about Project Blueprint. What other programs do you have that help organizations integrate a diverse culture into their not-for-profit? Well, we oversee uh, the Nonprofit Connection, which is a capacity building program, for want of a better term. It's kind of jargony, but um, really to provide the kind of support. The We do a lot of webinars. We do a good bit of board training, um, board retreats, strategic planning, um, working with organizations to make sure that they are thinking about where they need to be at this moment in history. And the if there was ever a year that brought that awareness right smack in our faces. This is the year that it happened. And um, it's unfortunate the way that it happened, but the reality is it was way past time. And so it pushed us perhaps faster than we might have moved otherwise. And I really think that um, we are all struggling to figure out the best way to go forward. And, And the advice that I give organizations is assume good intent. Um, mean no harm, that I may say or do something really stupid, but please know that it's because that's, I don't know any better, but I'm trying to learn. And I think we have to build that desire to learn and to listen and, you know, and to have those uncomfortable conversations that I, I may say the wrong thing, but I don't know how to get information any other way than to ask the question that I have in my head. And it may not be the question that you would have asked or would be in your head, but that you would be willing to have that dialogue in a comfortable way as as opposed to an accusatory way. And I think in many cases, we find ourselves in more of an adversarial role and that's that doesn't get us anywhere. So I think Absolutely. capacity building is a real avenue to to build and, and to provide tools for organizations as they um, embark on this journey. And, and uh, Francois said several different times, the whole idea of collaborating with other organizations, reaching out to those groups that perhaps you haven't worked with in the past or uh, you don't know very well. And it's, it's been my experience when you approach another nonprofit, they're usually pretty willing to talk and uh, pretty willing to sit down with you and share ideas and share thoughts. So, uh, you know, I think we have to expand our contact list and and really be prepared to um, move into some different networks and, and to really be explored. And I think it's a lot about just being open. I love that. That's, a, that's really great. Francois, I'd love for you to also highlight some of the programs that you're responsible for. I'm really proud of the work that I get to do at the State Fair. We're a small but mighty team. And the way that we're able to work is through collaboration and partnership. We could not do the work without having a lot of nonprofits and stakeholders come to the table. And so a lot of our work is focused in South Dallas. And one of the projects I'm so proud of is we have something called the South Dallas Employment Project. And it really is designed to look at how do we help folks who've been impacted by incarceration because we know in the area that we're located in and especially some surrounding zip codes that there's a concentrated population of folks that when they get back, they don't have resources and opportunity. And so we've partnered with a group called Redemption Bridge and we are working with Dallas College to provide certifications, national level certifications. Redemption Bridge has identified 200 plus employers. And then we're working with about 60 plus nonprofits. City of Dallas is involved. Um, we've got the North Texas Cog. I mean, it's just amazing. But it's not just these big groups. We have these little small nonprofits led by people of color on the ground who are part of seven committees. And we're not just looking at, you know, how do we get people jobs, but it's about housing and there's a transportation committee, but there's also a public policy committee. And to see the diversity of this group that's focused on this area, we have folks who are in the community and people who are not, but have an interest in it, working together to make sure a population gets the support and the services that it needs. And so partnership is one of the best ways in collaborating. And one of the things you have to be very mindful of is, when you're collaborating, you do have to give up something. It's not about control. It is not about power. And I think for a lot of nonprofits, we don't pay attention to power in communities and how we show up. 
And so there is a difference between agreement and compliance. I'm constantly having this conversation because we believe that when people partner with us, it means they agree and they really like us. Well, if you have resource, I'm going to smile and nod my head and do whatever you need. That means I'm compliant. It doesn't mean I'm in agreement. And so as nonprofits, especially those that have resource, we have to be mindful of our own power and privilege and how we show up in communities and that our ideal of partnership may not be that. It may be you have something that I need. And so being aware of those power dynamics and your own privilege is going to help move the needle in communities when we own that and we're aware of how we show up. You know, I think that is, it's so funny to hear you say that because um, I had a conversation with an organization we were talking about, well, what kind of collaborative ventures are you involved with? And I named a couple and she said, well, not really, because we don't control that one. You know, and I thought, ooh, <laughs> and, and she didn't realize what she was saying. That is exactly the the, the antonym, the opposite of collaboration, that it, it is. is. And, and you hit it when you said that you have to give something up that everyone is not going to be happy with the results, but you're, you can deal with it. You know, I, that wouldn't be my first choice, but I'm okay with it. And if you can't get to that place, um, you're not going to move forward. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, Francois, the, the word systems. And if you wanted to look at it from a purely funding perspective, that is the big word among foundations and corporate funders these days. They're really interested in systems change that, you know, when you're funding these little bitty movements on the ground one at a time, it doesn't make things change. And so how do you look at it from a perspective of, you know, we're a cog in the wheel, that we're a piece of it. And if we really want collective impact, which is another one of those buzzwords that's very popular right now, um, it really is all about partnering. It really is all about collaboration that I do this and you do that. And and you do it so much better than I do. Why would I want to duplicate it? It doesn't make any sense. We have an initiative in Houston called the Thrive Initiative, which is um, intended to help individuals and families achieve financial stability. And that's about owning assets. It's about having an education. It's about homeownership, um, savings, small business. And when we first started, we brought about 20 different organizations together and half of them were doing the same things and didn't even know about each other. I mean, really were unaware. And over time, this is our, I think it's our 13th year for Thrive. They have gotten to the place where, oh, you do this coaching piece. You do this family education piece. You do this workforce development piece. And so then it is a system. It, it becomes, and it's not easy and it's not always comfortable, but now we have people who know each other. They have relationships. I'll go back to your word, Francois, relationships. And, you know, they, they are, they'll disagree with each other. They'll call each other up and say, here's what I'm hearing. What do you think? I mean, it took us a long time to build that. And that's the thing I don't think people recognize. This doesn't happen overnight. We're not going to be singing Kumbaya in two days and that it's done. It takes time because at the core of relationships is trust. And it takes so much time to build that. And yet we can destroy it in just a few seconds. And so being um, being mindful of the power of what a nonprofit brings to a community and that you're a trusted entity. How do you steward that trust in a way that people want to be around you and want to be able to even call you out when you're not doing the right thing. And they feel comfortable in saying that to you that, hey, you got to step up and do some things. We need to make sure that we're keeping the lines of communication open with our partners, with our community members, so that it's not just everybody telling us you're doing great, great annual report, that it's people that are coming in. And and to your point, Ronnie, saying, hey, I don't like that, but I feel comfortable and I trust you enough to be able to have those conversations. But we have to create the space for that. I love that. You know, both of you are so passionate about improving the interaction, the collaboration. If we step back and say, if our topic is diversity and inclusion at the board level, and then it filters into the culture of the not-for-profit, I would love for each of you to give some examples of where that has led to success, where by doing that, the organization created positive outcomes. I don't know, Francois, if you want to start, and then I'd love to hear both of you to give some examples of those positive outcomes that have come from that. Well, I see it at the State Fair. You know, I'm biased because... Because I'm on the board. I I see it at the State Fair in Texas because, and I'm very honest, we haven't always been on the right side of history. And 
you, and 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 you know, I'm always uh, informing people. We know that, and and we are doing something about it. It's not just the head knowledge; it's the heart knowledge, and we're doing something. And so, it's been a very deliberate attempt at the board level to be able to bring in diverse people on our board, on the task force. Senior leadership is diverse. I mean, I'm on it, and there's some other people of color and women and different ages. And so to see that happen, even in our staffing, the vendors that we have, our intentionality around the folks that that are concessionaires. I mean, it's just interesting to see how it has become a part of the entire organization, but the senior leadership saw it was important and said we need to do something. And so until you have that buy-in from the top that says this is important because someone in middle management can say this is what we need to do and they can do it. But if you don't have the buy-in from the top that says we need to really evaluate our mission and, and what our commitment is to, and that's what happened at the fair, I don't think it really can change and permeate through the entire organization. So there has to be buy-in there. And just what I've seen with Mitchell Gleber, my boss and president of the fair and his commitment to this, you've seen in you know several years of some real changes. The fact that we have an anti-racism guide on our website speaks volumes about the State Fair and its commitment to change and and the community initiatives. I mean, last year, I'm so proud of the fact that we funded in 2019, 67 organizations and 90% of those were led by people of color. We're trying to not only impact our community, but I want us to change the narrative on philanthropy, which is another group that needs to be in this organization, but to change that narrative so that giving looks different. Because when you think about it, 0.6% of all giving in this country is given to organizations led by Black women. So there has to be a change, not only in the nonprofit area, but philanthropy also has to be involved in this conversation and begin to direct what this looks like. And when philanthropy says this is important, it will also be important to nonprofits too. You know, no, I think your your point about philanthropy is, is right on target. And some of your large institutions, if you look at the nationals like Ford and Rockefeller, are very mindful of that and have been very proactive really early to the table in having these conversations. As you kind of push it down to the local level, it, it's probably going to take longer. I think at United Way, we're in a unique position. We are both a grant maker and a grant seeker. And our, with our new leadership who has really made this commitment to shift, we are working on our new strategy called Second Century Vision. And a key piece of that is funding differently, moving away from our traditional funding models and really looking at how do we make sure that we are funding organizations led by people of color, organizations that are staffed by people of color. What is the, um, how are we allocating our funds that we're, we believe that we are very clear about where the need is, but are we addressing those organizations on the scene on the spot who are responding to that need. And maybe they haven't been on the radar in the past, but we are being very intentional as we look to the coming year. Uh, how do we change that? How do we shift that? And the reality is that the numbers are small. You just said it, Francois. How do we, how do we build a pipeline of leaders of color so that they are available and ready to step into those roles. I'm on the, I've been on the board of the Association of Fundraising Professionals. And that is one of our key initiatives this year is diversity and inclusion. Because when you think about recruiting individuals to work in your organizations, the the number of young people representing diverse communities is teeny tiny. And, you know, so let's step back and think about how do we address that? Well, we can do career fairs and we can do work with colleges and universities to see whether they have programs that even, do you even know what a fundraiser is? I have to say, I had no idea that fundraising was a profession. When I started out, it was news to me. So, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done that we can have an influence in, in building the base of professionals, new professionals, and we're going to have to start young. We're going to have to start in high school. Yes. And and talk about introduce communities to this is how this work gets done in nonprofit and it's a it would be a career that you really had to think about. There's a, a report that folks should be familiar with and it's readily available called Built for Texas that was done by um, the One Star Foundation, United Ways of Texas, UT, A and M, a survey across the state of what is the impact we have as nonprofits. It's huge. Yes. 
you know, in terms of we're second or third only to retail and manufacturing in terms of numbers of employees, the assets that we have, the resources, but we are, we are under the radar. And, you know, it's advocacy is another big piece of that. We're going to have to be much better advocates for our sector or, or, or we deserve what we get. We just can't sit by and be quiet anymore. Agree. And we won't. <laughs> and we won't. So let's move on. And Lori, can you start, go through some questions that we have received from the audience for Francois and Marcy? We've had a lot of great engagements. And going back to recruiting of board members, uh, Laura Hyatt has asked us, how would you look and define a right pool of candidates? And I'm using air quotes around right who defines that and how does your board define that? There is no such thing as right, <laughs> in my opinion. I'm glad you answered that first. <laughs> um, no, because you don't know the totality of a person to begin with. And so there are people I've seen on boards who came in who fit this bill and turned out to be something totally different. They didn't show up to meetings. They weren't committed. I mean, so so there is no right. I think one of the takeaways I hope you all get out of this is it is something that you should be evolving and consistently doing over and over. You will never get to a place where your board is at 100% and it's just perfect and you're all angelic. It is going to always be an issue. And so you have to be prepared for the constant changes, just like we do as individuals. We have to give that space for organizations um, and groups within organizations to be fluid and change. And so you know, I think you have the matrix and you have characteristics that you want, but you also have to be flexible and open to knowing the needs of your community. And for me, right is if it represents the community that I am in and serving, then that is getting me on the road to what possibly right can look like, knowing that it's going to be challenges and changes throughout. And it really I think that that board grid or template that we are talking about is such a good way to start because at least it lets you know who's on your board right now. Right. And it it's a very objective, straightforward, not my opinion, it's who who is on the board now. And I think a really important conversation among board members, you know, we sort of in passing reference strategy and, and operations. So the board's job is strategy. It is looking to the future. It's not about today. It's not about how we're operating today. But, you know, strategically, what kind of a culture do we want to build in this organization? And so some of those questions might be, what are the characteristics or the qualities? We want someone who is open-minded, who's eager to learn, who is hardworking, who has a sense of humor. There's nothing worse than a board member who has no sense of humor because sometimes you just have to laugh when you have a frustrating conversation. So Again, what the perfect board is different for everybody. And if you haven't had the conversation and you really haven't looked at who's there and how it's working, I think an annual board self-assessment is a really valuable tool to measure how do current board members feel about the experience and how would what changes would they like to see? And, and the same thing is is true, you know, even with your staff, when the, the staff looks at the, the culture of the organization, what's working well, what would they do differently? You know, if you don't ask the questions, you don't know what the answers are. Very nice. Um, Dorothea Anderson would like you to expand a little bit more on belonging and inclusion. Once you have a diverse board, how do you ensure that people feel that they belong and they are included in the process? I think about belonging in these party terms, you know, where where inclusion is you've invited me to the party, but belonging is you created the party with me in mind and I can show up and be who I am. And so part of the, the charge organizations should have is they're looking at this DBIE work is really thinking about how are you creating space for people to be who they are. Now, of course, you don't want people coming to work and they're, you know, talking about very intimate details of their life at home. You may have that at your company and great job if you do, you know, but but for most of us, that may not be what it looks like. But how can someone show up without hiding a piece of themselves and feeling like they have to sacrifice um, a part of themselves? I'm often reminded of the work of an author, W.B. Dubois, who talked about black folks had to have this double consciousness, meaning that black folks had to know how to deal with being in white environments, but also know how to deal with being in black environments. And so what happens is a person is divided. And when you talk about belonging, it is I am able to bring all of who I am and I don't have to just bring half of who I am to work. 
that you can accept who I am and you create things and processes and have me as a part of what that looks like. You know, I think that party image is such a good one that I think we've all had the experience where we've been invited to an event or a gathering and you walk in the room and there are all these little groups talking to each other and here you are and you don't know a living soul and you're trying to figure out, can I turn around and leave? Will anybody notice? Probably not. Or is this an important business opportunity, an important uh, relationship building opportunity? Do I just have to tough it out and pretend that I'm somebody that I'm not? I mean, put your... When do you feel like you belong? What does it take to make you personally feel as if you are genuinely welcome, if people want to have you there, if they're glad to see you, they want to hear what you have to say? You know, I think it's a fairly human experience and we all know what it doesn't feel like. We all know what it feels like when it's awful. So what does it feel like when it's good and how do we translate that into our work? Very nice. Very nice, ladies. One of the um, other questions that we receive is from Victoria Shepard, and she would like to know she runs a small housing nonprofit. And how many board members do you need? She's been told everything from 70 to seven. Oh, you will never get anything done with 70 people on a board. And I've seen boards have that that many people. One, it's hard to have quorum when you have that many people. You know, I, I think it, it, for me, I'm always comfortable with this seven to, to like 12 number. But I've seen boards with tw- one that I'm on now has about 21 people, but it's a very large board. And they had to downsize because it was too many people and they couldn't b- get business done. I think you have to really analyze using a board matrix. Who do you need? I think sometimes we're so random with numbers and going, it needs to be, you know, 25 people and, and you get 25 and they don't do anything. Examine what you need and what are the skill sets and the, the, the types of professions and geography that you need. And then determine it from there. And Ronnie will probably have even better information, but I tend to stay in a smaller number because I've seen boards that are so big and that they get folks with, you know, these big names who never come to meetings and nothing ever gets done. And it's a disservice to not only that organization who is depending on that guidance, it's a disservice to the community because they're waiting on that board to do its work to move that organization forward. And it's a disservice to the other board members who are. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. I mean, it's a fairness issue. It really is. I had a really funny conversation a while back with a, a board chair who said that that they were planning to double the size of their board. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what are you thinking? And I, so I said, well, you know, do you mind if I ask why? And she said, well, because nobody ever comes to meetings, so we can never have a quorum. And I thought if we doubled it. I thought that math doesn't work out exactly. But, you know, if you look nationally, boards have gotten smaller. Sort of an ideal size is in the 12 to 15. If you board source USA, those are the numbers that that they're looking at. Um, What happens in those big boards, as I call them, they usually have an executive committee that's nine to 12 people. And the executive committee does all the work. Nobody on the board has any clue what's going on. Technically, they're probably not operating legally because they're making decisions and not affirming those decisions with the rest of the board members. They're probably in total violation of their bylaws. It just proves that that smaller board is going to be that core group of people. And and as Francois said several times, you can have, have task forces and committees. And as long as there's a board liaison, you can bring in all those outsiders that you want to bring in. And you're going to have much better success bringing them in for that role than you are for a board role. We have just one more question, and it is around um, your board subcommittees. Are you seeing a opportunity for a subcommittee focused on diversity at the board level? I'm concerned with it being a subcommittee because okay. it's the integration piece. If there is not a clear directive on how that committee has power to move things, one of the frustrations I'm having right now is I'm seeing all these jobs for people in DEI who are, you know, great titles. They have no budget, no support staff. They can't do anything. So great title. Company look good. Nothing is going to happen. You know, I, I think it's the same thing with when we think about these committees. If it's not integrated into the board. And, and if you're going to start off at that level, where is the accountability making sure that this group actually has power to, to enforce what they're trying to do? And that, to me, is a better question of what is going to be the process for this to be implemented? Or is it just another PR opportunity to say we did something and we're done? 
I am not a huge fan of committees. I confess that's probably um, heresy in the nonprofit world. You need a finance committee. I like a governance committee, maybe a fundraising committee. But, you know, if it's not part of the board's core mission and purpose, um, as Francois said, it's not going to happen. And it, it gives a different message. It says, oh, we're going to put this over here as yes. opposed to this is part of our strategy for the year ahead that we are committed to this and it is a priority and it will be at, on every board agenda and we will be setting desired outcomes and we will be moving forward on it. I, I, you have to decide if it's really part of your strategy or if it's just something you're going to do. Well, thank you, Lori, very much for reading some of the questions that were posed. I think that makes everyone have the opportunity to really get the most out of this session. Um, I will just really want to thank all of the participants today for listening in, and especially Ronnie, you for your time and leadership and being part of this session, and you, Francois, for your time and being part of this session. Both of your passion really made the environment and the conversation go perfectly and a little bit long because everyone was clamoring to ask questions. That's what we love. We really appreciate your time and, and, and ability to be with Weaver today during our not-for-profit session series and hope that we've provided some great insight to all of our not-for-profit clients and sources out there that we want to continue to engage with. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you all so much. And we appreciate having all of our panelists here with us today.